If uh, you're here for the first time, I want to give you a special welcome, and it's my heart's desire that um, Sundays at FCF will be something that you'll anticipate and consider the most meaningful part of your week. Uh, for the online family, we want to welcome you and hope you feel like full participants. I forgot one other announcement. Uh, if you are here for the first time, you might want to know that uh, the first Sunday of each month is Snake Handling Sunday. So, you know, just we test people's faith. And <laughs> but don't let that bother you. We're normal people other than that. <laughs> well, we're continuing a series called Life in a Word, and I've said each week that, uh, you know, regardless of how complicated human beings are, regardless of how complicated our lives are, Sometimes our whole character, our whole life can be summed up with just one word. And we've looked through four of these words, and today we come to a fifth one. And it's kind of a simple word. It's the word broken. Sometimes a person feels like their whole character, their whole self, their whole life can be summed up with the word broken. Now, I want to start off by sharing with you a few quotations of some people. And I want to say this more carefully than I did in the first service. This is Brian Stevenson. He's a lawyer and activist near here, actually, in Baltimore. But the people that I quote from from week to week, please don't, don't assume that I'm associating myself with their philosophical or political or ideological positions. I just find their quotes interesting. Uh, I, I just wouldn't want you to confuse that. Anyway, Brian Stevenson, he says, We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. Wondering, just kind of weigh that, do you agree with that statement? Here's another one from a novelist, uh, Anne Lamott. Some of you are probably familiar with her. She said, One of the worst things about being a parent for me is the self-discovery the being face-to-face with one's secret insanity and brokenness and rage. Children have a way of bringing the best out in us, but they can also bring the craziness out in us, too, when they, you know, kind of wear you thin. Maybe you identify with that. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, I'm not used to seeing his whole name like that. Anyway, he was a very influential writer, considered uh, one of the best writers of our century. And he says, in the end... We're all just humans, drunk on the idea that love, only love, could heal our, and the word, brokenness. So brokenness. We're all kind of familiar with it, and these folks that we've listened to, their their ideas that every human that you and I will ever meet has brokenness inside ourselves. Perhaps we could go further and say, is broken that we never meet a whole, a completely healthy human being. We might say it differently. We never meet a human being that is exhibiting perfectly the image of God that we were designed and created to exhibit because something is wrong with us. The idea that we're broken is that something is not as useful or it is not... um, it's not capable of being as useful as it was meant to be. It's, it's the idea that something has gone wrong with someone. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to jump right in to uh, look at a portion of Scripture today. It's going to take us a little time to work through it and the character of that Scripture. So I'm going to turn you right away to uh, page 613. You'll be looking at Psalm 31. We'll cover the whole psalm. And as you're going there, I'm going to give you a, a huge, enormous amount of background before I, we even start reading this psalm. 
And I'm doing it because it's going to make reading this psalm so much more meaningful to you when we get into it. There's 150 psalms, and 75 of those are by David. David was the second king of Israel, and uh, most of them, you know, will, will have his name. Many of them have musical instructions because David was an amazing songwriter and poet, and he wrote these psalms to be sung, you know, uh, in the Israelite worship. Eleven of the psalms that he wrote, they, they apply to specific situations. He gives a context. He said, I wrote this psalm when this was going on. That's in 11 of them out of the 75. But many others, you can figure out what part of his life uh, was occurring when he wrote the psalm because he, he gives details that you know, oh, I know when that was happening. And knowing the background can make these psalms just come alive in an entirely different way. So when you come to this psalm that we're going to look at, David is not a young guy anymore. He's 66 years old. He is looking back. The Spirit of God is leading him to recapture many of his experiences, his innermost thoughts and feelings, and to put them in print so that they can be used by the Spirit of God to enlighten and strengthen and bring healing to God's people for ages upon ages. But David will live on to be probably 70 to 74 years old. Uh, let me go further. I'm going I'm to add something in now. After this event, and you're going to see David is, is owning and experiencing in the most painful way his personal brokenness in this psalm. But after this, like I said, he'll go on to live about another eight years. And it's after this, after feeling like a complete washout, a complete broken person, a complete uh, someone's life that has been completely broken and ruined, he ends up receiving from God the detailed, specific instructions on how God wants his temple to be built. So far from his life being over or nothing, un or nothing productive about it to be accomplished, not true at all, even though he was feeling pretty much like that at this time. All right, let me give you a little bit more background. David's life starts out, you, you read the stuff on your own, it starts in like 1 Samuel 15, it goes all the way through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, a little bit in Kings, but mostly it's 1 and 2 Samuel. David starts out, he's just this guy in a family of seven brothers and the Lord sends Samuel the prophet to him and says I want this boy David to be the next king in Israel Saul was the first king in Israel he had become disobedient to God God couldn't work through him anymore so he says I want, I want David so he has Samuel the prophet anoint David this young man to be the next king but then nothing happens life goes on he just keeps on tending the sheep then all of a sudden Saul King Saul starts having these these terrible depressive uh, demonically inspired fits of depression and rage and he calls for David who was also a really good musician to come and play on his harp to just kind of calm him down when he was in these depressed moods so David gets into the king's court Saul doesn't know that God has said he wants David to replace him David just knows huh interesting I'm all of a sudden in the king's court well life goes on and then you know how this big battle between the Israelites and the Philistines occurs and Goliath the giant warrior for the Philistines. He says, no need for our armies to fight. You just get your best guy. I'm there. I'm the Philistines' best guy. Let's go at it. Whoever wins between me and the other Israelite, that's who we'll all serve. And the Israelites are paralyzed. This guy's nine foot six tall. He's a freak. 
And, and so they don't have anybody that's ready to fight this guy. He makes fun of them for 40 days. And then David is delivering some food to his brothers who were soldiers. And he hears this guy. And you know how the story goes. He says, well, why isn't anybody fighting this guy? I, I'll fight him. I, I, he won't be anything to me. The Lord showed me how I could kill a bear and kill a lion. He'll, he'll just put this, this Philistine into my hands. And you know the story. He gets to sling. It's not this kind of a sling. It's that kind of a sling. They could th throw rocks about this size, 100 miles an hour. So the thing that took Goliath out was a serious weapon. And he kills Goliath. And all of a sudden, he goes from being kind of a nobody to being the star in Israel. And Saul takes him makes him kind of his right-hand man, his main general, and Saul, King Saul, gives to David his daughter, Michael, to be David's wife. And so everything is looking great for David. Then all of a sudden, Saul gets very jealous and scared because people are talking more about David than they are talking about Saul. So Saul, two different occasions, tries to pin David to a wall with a javelin. David now has to flee for his life, and for the next four years, he's on the run. By the way, King Saul takes David's wife, Michael, and gives her to another man to rub it in even worse. So David's on the run for four years. Lots of people gather around him. He starts forming his own little band, his own little army. Eventually, King Saul gets killed. And finally, David becomes the king that God had originally anointed him to be. Things go well. He unites the kingdoms. But he makes a mistake when he comes to Jerusalem. The scripture says that he had eight wives that we have by name, okay? And then it says when he comes to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 3, it said he married many more wives, we have no idea how many, and many concubines, which were like harem girls, okay, for want of a better term. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it said specifically that an Israelite king was never to multiply wives, never to multiply horses. Not sure why those two were categorized together. And, <laughs> and not to multiply gold. <laughs> so David kind of miscued there. So, nevertheless, life goes on in the kingdom, rather successful. He fights the battles of the Lord, and he, you know, claims back most of the land that the other Canaanites had been bothering them to take back and then he's 55 years old things are going good he's kind of established and instead of going out with his troops to fight in the fighting season spring of the year he decides hey I'm just going to stay home you guys go you know what to do you've watched me just go do it he stays at home and you know how the story goes he can't sleep one night he's looking off his balcony he looks off his balcony and he sees this really good-looking woman taking a bath her name happens to be Bathsheba has no connection with the bath but he sees her, and he wants her. Now, what did I say? He had many wives, eight we know by name, many more in Jerusalem, and a harem. We don't know how many was in that. But he sees this woman who is married to a man who is a soldier at war. He gets the woman to be brought to him, and, of course, they end up having uh, a sexual evening. Life goes on. He acts like nothing's big about it, and then she sends a message a little later that she's pregnant. So now David comes up with this scheme. He says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have your husband, Uriah, we're going to, we're going, I'm going to put him right up to the front of the troops in the most fierce battle, and I'm going to give orders for the troops to withdraw and leave him standing there, and he does it. He has Uriah murdered to cover up his sin. Then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. You can see he's going bad. It's getting dark. Almost immediately, things start to happen poorly in his household. Because of the multiple wives and kids and all this kind of stuff, one of his sons, his firstborn son, Amnon, has this 
incredible crush on his half-sister Tamar, who was the sister of Absalom, another son of David's. And so he comes up with this scheme about being sick, and finally he grabs Tamar and he rapes her. Well, after he rapes her, he wants nothing to do with her. He treats her like dirt. He throws her out of the house. And when Absalom, her brother, hears about this, as he should have been, he's fuming. He waits two years until he gets his shot to kill Amnon, and he does. He murders Amnon. Chaos just breaks out. Absalom takes off on the run for three years. Finally, David receives him back. He lets him live in Jerusalem for two years, but he won't talk with him. Finally, he starts talking to him again and kind of reestablishes Absalom. Let me tell you about Absalom while we're on him because he plays a key role in this psalm. Believe me, this is all going somewhere. You're going to see the connection, man. It's going to make sense. You're going to say, glad you did that, Randy. <laughs> it says of Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 14, I think it's verse 25 and 26, it says, he was the best-looking man in all of Israel. It says he was perfect physically to look at. And on top of it all, my man has such a mane of hair, he, he would only get a cut once a year, and when he would get a cut, it would weigh three pounds. This is what's in Scripture. I, I so wish I had some of that Absalom hair. <laughs> so he's this handsome, you know, guy... Well, when David restores him for four years, he starts working the people. He says, you know, you got a problem, come to me with it. Come to me with a problem. And he says, you know, if I had the opportunity, I'd help you. Yeah, my dad, you know, he's all over the place, but <laughs> I'd help you. He works the people for four years until he gets enough support to overthrow his father's kingdom, and he seeks to kill his own father. He had already killed his brother. He seeks to kill his own father. When you come to this psalm, that's the background. David is running for his life. He's 66 years old. He's having one of those moments where the circumstances are forcing him to look at himself, look at his life, look at the way others see him and feel about him all at once. Perhaps you've had one of those times. They are not typically pleasant times in life. It only takes the right set of circumstances to trigger it, but you find yourself just sort of looking at your whole life, looking at yourself, and frankly, not feeling good about any of it, not feeling good at all. You feel broken, and you feel like your life is just a broken mess, and that's where David's at. Now, in the Psalms, they're kind of funny in that they're written with an intention. David's intention is to strengthen you, to strengthen me, to strengthen generations of people, to trust in God, to be devoted to him, to be stable in him no matter what's going on in our life. That's his purpose. You're going to see certain verses make that very clear that he's writing it for you. He's writing it for me. But the rest of the psalm, David does this thing in many of his psalms. He kind of does a reenactment. You know, we're used to those reenactments on TV. He He's reliving the psalm. He's reliving the experience. He's telling us what was he thinking when he was in the experience, what was he feeling, what was going through his mind. He's turning himself inside out, making himself incredibly vulnerable because he believes that that's what the Spirit of God wants to use to bring strength and healing to other broken human beings. So let's get into it now. now. Now you know everything there is, man, to know about David. By the way, there's more in the Old Testament about David than anybody else in the Old Testament. Here we go. Here, we're going to go fast now. The first 22 verses are all his kind of his reenactment of 
when he's on the run from his son Absalom. He says, in you, O Lord, I have taken shelter. Never let me be humiliated. Vindicate me by rescuing me. Notice he's in trouble. Rescuing me. Listen to me. Quickly deliver me. Be my protector and refuge, a stronghold where I can be safe. For you are my high ridge and my stronghold. For the sake of your own reputation, you lead me and guide me. You will free me from the net they have hid from me. For you are my place of refuge. Into your hands I entrust my life or my spirit. You will rescue me, O Lord, the faithful God. I hate those who serve worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be happy and rejoice in your faithfulness because you notice. Now, when we get into this verse from here through verse 13, uh, excuse me, verse 12, he starts really showing us what's going on inside. Because you notice my, what is the word? Pain. He's 66 years old. His, his son is trying to kill him. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost. He's on the run. And he's saying, you see, you see the pain inside me. And you are aware of how distressed I am. You do not deliver me over to the power of the enemy. You enable me to stand in a wide open place. Have mercy on me, for I am in distress. He's exhausting language to tell God and to tell us in generations how awful it felt to be him at this point. He goes on, and this is how we know that he was aged when he wrote this. In the words that uh, go from here, he says, My eyes grow dim from suffering. I've lost my strength, for my life nears its end in pain. He's older. He thinks he's going to die for sure. My years draw to a close as I groan. My strength fails me because of my what? See, now, now we're getting really to the heart of it. David is seeing these circumstances as all interconnected. He's looking back at his life. He's looking at the miscues. He's looking at the ways that, that God had given him so much, and he didn't always stay faithful, didn't always use it the way God meant him to use it. And he knows that he has somehow been responsible, even for the corruption of his son Absalom. He's hating himself. He's hating life in the circumstances he's in. And he's thinking, this is how my life is going to end. He goes on. Verse 11, because of all my enemies, people disdain me. My neighbors are appalled at my suffering. Those who know me are horrified by my condition. Those who see me in the street run away from me. Key verse right here. I am forgotten like a dead man. No one thinks about me. I am regarded as worthless like a, what kind of jar? Broken jar. What do you do with a broken jar? You throw it away. It's not any longer good for anything. David's saying, I think this is the way people see me. This is how he felt, that, that the people that he had served as king for so long, that they now saw him as worthless, as somebody that was just to be thrown away. This is how he probably felt in himself. My whole life comes to this. And it's because of a lot of things that he knew that he had been responsible for. He goes on. Verse 13, I hear what so many are saying and the terrifying news that comes from every direction. When they plot together against me, they figure out how they can take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I declare you are my God. You determine my destiny. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and those who chase me. Smile on your servant. Deliver me because of your faithfulness. 
Oh, Lord, do not let me be humiliated, for I call out to you. May evil men be humiliated. May they go wailing in the grave. May lying lips be silenced that they, that they speak defiantly against the, excuse me, lips that, that speak defiantly against the innocent with arrogance and contempt. Now, now he's going to talk to us. Here's his purpose of writing the psalm. He says, how great is your favor which you store up for who? Your loyal followers. He's giving a testimony. He's saying, look at me. I was at the end of myself. I was broken. My whole life looked shattered. But he's saying, loyal followers, when you start feeling this way, know that your God is not going to fail you. He rescues David. He's going to rescue us. He says, how great is your favor which you store up for those loyal followers. It goes on. In plain sight of everyone, you bestow it on those who take shelter in you. He says, you, you hide them with you where they are safe from the attacks of men. You conceal them. Notice it's them. It's us today. Them in a shelter where they are safe from the slanderous attacks. Now he's giving you a view about what he was thinking and feeling when he was in the midst of this. He says, the Lord deserves praise for he demonstrated his amazing faithfulness to me when I was besieged by enemies. I jumped to conclusions and I said, I'm cut off from your presence. In other words, he didn't think God was going to bail him out and rescue him this time. But you heard my plea for mercy when I cried out to you for help. Now he comes back to us. Love the Lord, all you faithful followers of his. The Lord protects those who have integrity, but he pays back in full the one who acts arrogantly. Be strong and confident, all you who what? Wait on the Lord. So that's, that's to us. So he's showing us one of the most broken experiences in his life. But he's showing it to us because he thinks God wants to use this to bring confidence, trust, hope, courage, and healing to people like ourselves who are equally broken. First thing we have to do when it comes to brokenness is this, and this is probably the trickiest and hardest part. We have to own it. And own it means so much more than just saying, yeah, man, I'm, I'm not perfect. I admit, I'm not a perfect person. You're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. That's not owning your brokenness. That's not owning my brokenness. David was owning it on the deepest levels. Owning our brokenness. Here's some New Testament truth that kind of helps us with this a little bit to reinforce it. Paul writing to followers of Christ in Romans says, just as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even, what does it say? One, not even one. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The result of not being righteous, and to be righteous means that I'm not living the way God designed me, the right way. I'm designed to show forth the image of God. God is kind all the time. God is generous all the time. God tells the truth all the time. I'm designed to be kind all the time, to tell the truth all the time, to be generous all the time. And when I don't live according to my design, knowingly or unknowingly, here's what I get. I get ruin and I get misery. And the way of peace, I, I have no peace. I'm in turmoil. I, I'm, I'm restless. And the way of peace they have not known, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the character of God. I am made, you are made to mirror the character of God. That's my truest self. That's your truest self. And when we don't, we get hurt. 
knowingly or unknowingly. Here's another verse that just kind of reinforces this. Now, this is Jesus talking, and he talks about what goes on inside of us. He says, for from within, out of the human what? You ever hear people say, well, he might be a rascal, but he's got a good heart. How many of you ever heard? Well, Jesus doesn't seem to think that our hearts are so good. For from within, out of the human heart, comes evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from where? Within and defile the person. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this, but I know you because you're human and I'm human. Sometimes we have things go through our minds, thoughts that go through our minds that we would not want anyone to ever know. In fact, we're kind of shocked at them ourselves. We're like, where the heck did that come from? You know? Well, Jesus tells us there's something wrong with us. We're, we're, we're broken. We were, we were born into a world where we don't get to see our creator face to face. We're born into a world where the creator's will is not done everywhere. It's a dangerous world. It's a dark world. We're born just trying to survive and grab what little bit of pleasure we can, just, just find a little bit of happiness. And it leads us into all kinds of destructive practices and inside the damage just accumulates so Jesus says that we are broken indeed inside. Now, the book of Proverbs speaks about what we can do. We start to turn a corner on this a little bit. It says, the one who covers his transgressions, I'm going to put the word in brokenness, the one who covers his transgressions or brokenness will not prosper, won't, won't develop, won't get ahead, won't move forward. But whoever does what? Confesses, that's owning, that's part of owning. Whoever confesses them and then does what? forsakes them will find mercy sometimes we get really comfortable with confessing but we don't follow through with forsaking and if we don't forsake the damage goes on you see, you see he, we have to give some clarity when God calls something sin it's not like he's just made some rules up because he can he's saying based on the way I design you if you do this this is going to hurt you you may not even know it but it's hurting you inside and I don't want to see you hurt. I love you. I want to see you experience the quality of life I created you for, but you can't experience it unless you eliminate certain behaviors. God is not some spoil sport trying to crowd out our fun. Now, I'm going to very quickly share with you four really important truths about brokenness. Here we go. Number one, we tend to deny our brokenness until it's what? Undeniable. We tend to say things like, oh, yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but so what? Nobody's perfect. Uh, well, you know, I might do that, but look, look, at, look at how many other people do that. You know, we, we do all these kinds of things. It wasn't my fault. Yeah, I blew up and hit him in the head with a hammer, but he shouldn't have shouted at me. You know, it's like we blame shift, we minimize, we trivialize, we, you know, we do all these things. And usually it's not until the consequences are so big that we no longer can deny it that we just finally say, you know, man, something... So I know what it is. I know what it is. I'm talking personally now to you. I know what it is to sit on the side of the bed with my head hanging and saying, what in the heck is wrong with you? Who are you, man? That's brokenness. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But it is the start of healing and sanity. 
So we tend to deny our brokenness until it is undeniable. Truth number two. Owning the depths of our brokenness requires familiarity with the depths of what? God's grace. When I start seeing the junk in me, it's scary. I end up discovering I'm way worse than I ever dreamt. Uh, and, and this becomes very alarming unless I know that God sees this already, that he is not surprised, he is not shocked, and he loves me, and he will have grace to bring healing to me. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me. He is not shocked. He is not angry. Unless I'm really familiar with the depths of God's grace, I won't go very deep in discovering my own brokenness. It's too painful. It's too threatening. Truth number three, brokenness owned opens the door to what humility real humility and ever-increasing christ-like development here's the connection christ-like development like when you read in the book of galatians the fruits of the spirit these these attributes that are christ-like attributes like love joy peace kindness gentleness patience self-control these things all grow in humility until you and i know what it is to be truly humbled and we usually don't know what it is to be truly humbled until we really own our brokenness and we feel it at its core depth it's from that humility ironically that these christ-like characteristics virtues start to grow we become kinder we become gentler we become more compassionate we become less self-centered and so on so brokenness own opens the door to humility and ever-increasing christ-like development this is good news this is why we should go through the pain of owning it number four brokenness is like knowing the secret language needed to heal another soul. This is a big positive part. You see, once we own our brokenness, we can now use our brokenness. We know the language of another broken soul, and we know how to connect with them, and they can tell as soon as we start talking to them, you understand me. You, you know what I'm going through. You know what this struggle is like. I know that you know because you've been through it. And you don't see me with judgmental eyes. You see me with eyes of compassion and hope and healing. It becomes the learning lab whereby we can connect to someone else on a very intimate level and be channels of God's healing in their life. And that's a beautiful, wonderful experience. Second Corinthians talks about it. The Apostle Paul, writing to followers of Christ living in Corinth, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It goes on. Who comforts us in all our what? All our troubles. We may not experience his comfort. We may not know it's available, but he wants to. Well, why? Why do you comfort us in all our troubles? So that, so that we may be able to comfort those, that's other people, experiencing any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It gives you the language, the secret language of another person's soul and you can be God's channel of healing them. You know how God comforted you. You know how God healed you. You know how he's brought you forward. You can now connect with them and help them find his healing, his comfort, and so forth. So it's very valuable in that regard. There's a lady. Her name is uh, Margaret Manning Schull. And in an article, she talks about encouraging churches to find creative ways to help those that are marginalized in society. And she brings up this article from the New York Times where in Amsterdam, they have a tremendous alcohol, alcoholism problem and drug addiction problem and all. 
but they're trying some really crazy things to work with these folks to get them back on their feet and moving in the right direction. So in Amsterdam, literally, they are offering jobs, uh, manageable jobs for alcoholics, and they are paying them with beer. <laughs> I know it sounds a little crazy, but with some people, it's actually working. They're an alcoholic anyway, so pay them with something they want, you know? Um, true, I'm not being facetious here. So let me go back to that. So in this article, they interviewed this one man who, who is probably my age or older. He's been an alcoholic since the 1970s when his then pregnant with twins wife overdosed and died. And he's been an alcoholic ever since. But he's in one of these work programs and, and he really loves it. He says it makes him at least feel, you know, kind of like a human being again, although he's still an alcoholic. He makes, so here's his words. Every day is a struggle, he said, during a lunch break with his workmates. You may see these guys hanging around here chatting, making jokes, it goes on. But I can assure you, every man you see here carries a little backpack with their own misery in it. When I read that, when I came across that, I thought, man, that's the gold. That's, that's, the, that's the vision we need to walk through life with. You and I never meet a human being. I don't care how together they appear to be. I don't care how they make themselves look on Facebook and all the cool stuff they say they're experiencing. You and I should know every human being is carrying a backpack of misery. They're broken. And they need people that are aware of their brokenness that can connect with them in a loving, accepting way. I'm going to skip those other verses from 2 Corinthians, and I just want to go right to this quote. I'm struck by how sharing our weaknesses and difficulties is more nourishing to others than sharing our qualities and our successes. It's an interesting thing. When we are feeling our brokenness the most, we feel so much better when we're face-to-face -face with someone else that's equally aware of their brokenness, we feel safe with them. We know they'll treat us with gentle, compassionate hands and hearts, and they can be agents of healing in our lives. And so once we own our brokenness, which is not an easy thing to do, David does in this portion of Scripture, then we can use it. And that's why David had the psalm there. He was using his brokenness to tell us, have confidence in God, you loyal followers. He'll rescue you. He's with you. He won't leave you and forsake you. So once we own our brokenness, we can then use it. It's, it's your learning lab to connect with another human being and become an agent of God's healing. Let me close with a kind of a fun story that I came across. It's about a one-minute video I'll share with you, and then we'll close. Temple University's Rob Blackson found 1,500 abandoned instruments and decided to save them, getting world-renowned composer David Lang to write a sort of misfit melody. I just said, yes, I, I knew exactly what to do with these instruments. Strangled trombone. Many can't be played in the traditional way. So musicians from the schools and Philly Orchestra are improvising for a full-scale, full-house symphony. People adopted the instruments online, and all proceeds go to restoration, returning them to students who otherwise wouldn't be able to make music. Musical instruments in the schools changed my life, 
And these 1,500 instruments are capable of changing the lives of students in this school system right now. Forgotten instruments inspiring the future. You can't help but like the sound of that. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News, Philadelphia. When I, when I came across this, I thought to myself, man, what a, what a perfect picture of the church of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church, my community, my gathering, my assembly, um, and nothing will stop it. And Jesus' church, Jesus' assembly, his community, it's made up of broken instruments. Once we return to Christ, our creator, in trust and become his followers, now we are instruments that the, the music of God's love and God's grace and God's healing and his truth about life, it, it can be heard through our brokenness. And our brokenness actually turns out to be good instrumentality. So as we close, have you owned, have you really owned your brokenness? It's not a, it's not a small experience. You'll know if you have or not. Because it's one of those times when you're alone with God in your soul and you see yourself close to the way you really are. It's a life-changing experience. Secondly, if you have owned your, your brokenness, did you know that God wants you to use it? That, that your brokenness is the perfect channel for his healing grace to flow through, to touch another human life, that you have expertise that God wants to use, your, your brokenness actually qualifies you in an extraordinary way to do things in the lives of other people that, that others can't do because their brokenness might not be the same sort. Are you praying at least, God, give me, give me paths to cross where I might use my brokenness to bring your healing love to another broken person. That's a good prayer. Last question. Is it possible that you're becoming aware of your brokenness, that, that like those verses in Romans said, you know, no, no one's righteous, no, not one, and our lives are full of ruin and misery and there's no peace. Maybe this is God's way of trying to awaken you. You're living contrary to your design. The scripture says we were made by Christ and for Christ and apart from him, life doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't go here. Maybe, maybe your brokenness is meant to bring you to this place today where you will say, I am going to put my trust in Christ. I'm no longer going to be trusting in myself anymore. I'm going to do things his way. I'm going to trust Christ and today, I'm really, truly going to become his follower. The scripture says that when we make that simple decision to return to our, our creator and trust, that he forgives all of our sins. He gives us eternal life in his kingdom and he starts to bring his healing to work in our lives so that we can develop and grow and we can become who God always meant us to become and do what he always meant us to do. Maybe, maybe that's what this message has been about for you today. So whichever decision the Spirit of God might be leading you to make. I, I hope you'll make them because, you know, these kind of moments where you just, you make a decision in a vulnerable, open time to God, sometimes they can transform the entire trajectory of your life and even your family for generations to come. Let's pray. Father, you know exactly how hard this is for us. Uh, Help us, assure us that with you we are safe. We can own our brokenness fully. We can look at it. And by doing so, we can find in you 
deliverance, rescue, healing, strength, stability, hope, and even usefulness in our brokenness. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.